0: Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Ken Song. Ken is the CEO of San Diego-based Raise Bio. Ken is a physician scientist by training, but his interest quickly turned toward the biotech world as a consultant and then as a venture capitalist at Venrock. He developed an unusual set of experiences there, first in diagnostics, through co-founding and leading Ariosa Diagnostics, which was acquired by Roche, and then in therapeutics at Medicrin. At Ray's bio, Ken discovered a new opportunity in a subset of cancer R&D that had long ago been abandoned. It's about creating targeted cancer therapies loaded with radioactive isotopes to give them extra tumor-killing punch. These aren't the same thing as antibody drug conjugates, in which a targeted antibody aims for tumors and unloads a toxic chemical compound to kill the tumor. This is targeted radiation, for short. Scientists have been working on this type of treatment for decades and have been stymied by failures of many different kinds. Ken was surprised and excited to learn a couple years ago that some things have happened to change that narrative. He's busy putting the pieces together now to make not just one radio pharmaceutical for cancer, but to put together a platform for making many of them. It's a fascinating story, and I encourage you to go back and reread a piece that I did on Ken and Ray's back in October of 2020 when it raised a Series A financing co-led by VenBio and Versin Ventures this is a conversation with a very sharp scientific entrepreneur thinking hard about how to create potent new tools in the toolbox against cancer. Now, please join me and Ken Song on The Long Run. Ken Song, welcome to The Long Run. Thanks. So, Ken, uh, I, uh, I remember speaking with you almost a year ago exactly when you raised the Series A financing for Raise Bio, and it was one of those conversations w- where we only talked for maybe half an hour, and I thought, oh, I wish I had recorded that because that would have been a good episode of the long run. <laughs> so, uh, this is how you got on my list, and, and you're back here a year later. So, welcome.
1: Thanks so much, and uh, thanks for remembering me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so we're going to talk about radio pharmaceuticals and how this whole modality has uh, been resurrected. I think, and, and there's a, a lot of possibilities now for radio pharmaceuticals, radio targeted therapies, whatever you want to call them, for cancer. Um, but before we get into all of that, uh, the genesis of rays. Let's tell. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, where'd you grow up?
1: Sure, I was born in Michigan, so the good old Midwest, and I grew up there, you know, all the way up through high school. With the exception of one year I lived in Korea. Um and then after that I I left Michigan and then I never returned. <laughs> Why is that? Well, I, I think it, it was a great upbringing. I think I I definitely appreciated my my childhood, um uh, but I went out school to uh to MIT out east, and I think that really just opened me up to realizing that there's so much more opportunity, um, a lot more diversity beyond sort of what I'd experienced as a child. And then when I moved from the East Coast after graduating from MIT to the West Coast into San Francisco of all places, I mean, that even opened me up even more to just seeing just the vastness of all the different things that could be done, the different types of peoples and cultures and opportunities. And um, I think that's why sort of why I've stayed, you know, for the most part, even on the West Coast.
0: Well, I uh, live in Seattle, and I'm a Midwestern boy as well, so I I hear some of what you're saying. Uh, But how did you end up in Michigan? Uh, What did your parents do?
1: Yeah, so both my parents were immigrants. They uh, are from Korea, and they both immigrated here separately uh, to do their uh, postgraduate education. And so they both got their PhD, coincidentally, in economics, and they met each other here in the U.S. back in the 60s, which was pretty atypical back then. Um, And, you know, my dad was a professor in economics at the University of Detroit, and my mom was a female executive as an Asian woman in one of the big three automotive companies. And so that's how we ended up in Michigan. Oh, wow. Uh,
0: So she was a trailblazer. Definitely. Okay. Okay. So you obviously did pretty well in school to go to MIT. Did you know what you wanted to do then early on as an undergrad?
1: I just knew I wanted to do something in science because I think I like things that are technical and also tend to be a little bit more objective.
0: So, um, but how did you decide you wanted to go to medical school? Because like becoming a doctor, like, I mean, it's, it's becoming more scientific, but there's a whole lot of being a doctor that's not based in science. Absolutely. So I still remember this so distinctly. I was on an airplane flight
1: going back to MIT in my freshman year, and I had two calendars in front of me for the next several years. One was to be a computer science major, and the other one was to be a biology major. And I really could have gone either way. And I think when I looked at it, the biology schedule just sort of fit better with my schedule overall. And that's how I, like, to be honest, that's how I ended up becoming a biology major. And then within that, I think I realized I like the aspect of more translational or the application of science. And that's how I ended up becoming a pre-med.
0: Okay. Okay. So you did pre-med then, and then you go to medical school at UCSF? That's right. What drew you out there? Was it just part of like what you said earlier, exploring the West Coast and seeing what that scene is like?
1: I think it was just looking for going to an institution where I felt I could get a great education, but also experiencing, experiencing things a little bit differently. I think I've come to appreciate that a diversity of experiences really helps, at least for myself, I think give me a much broader perspective on things. And having never lived in the West Coast, I thought that that was a great opportunity. And, you know, UCSF is a great school, too. So I, was, I felt very fortunate to have been accepted there as a student.
0: You did internal medicine. Is that right? Yeah. So just not to digress too much, after
1: after medical school, I left medicine and I joined McKinsey, a consulting firm. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I went back into medicine um, at UCSF. And I did internal medicine. And then I subspecialized in gastroenterology at the University of Washington, where I was doing both a clinical fellowship as well as a research fellowship and worked in a laboratory up at the Fred Hutch Cancer Center.
0: Okay. So were you thinking in those days that you would make this your career as a physician scientist?
1: Absolutely. I was in the process of applying for grants, and I was going to run a laboratory and do translational research and see patients just a minority of the time.
0: Uh Uh-huh. So how did that change for you? How did you go to industry? Um, So I got a call from someone that I knew who I used to work with many,
1: many years ago at McKinsey, who was in the venture capital sector and had said, hey, Ken, we're looking for People who have a medical background to join us. Would you be interested? And my initial response was absolutely not. Right? I said I left medicine once. I was on the consulting side. I didn't really enjoy it. Uh, and I have a plan. But then this individual had sort of said that being a venture capitalist was very different than being a consultant. I spoke to several other individuals who were within the VC industry, and so I I decided at that point. You know, I was board certified. I had gone and done all the training as a physician. It really did sound like venture capital could be quite an interesting area to see a broad set of new technologies and future uh, potential products. And so I thought to myself, let's just give it a shot. And if I don't like it, I can easily just come back into medicine. And it's very easy to make that transition. I had done it once before, uh, but that's how I ended up leaving medicine a second time. (laughs) And then Uh I haven't gone back. And was that Venrock? So yeah, I did go to Venrock. the, the I don't want to say that the individual who reached out to me was for a different firm. But then as I started investigating it, I got in touch with a few other places. But I ultimately went to Venrock as my choice to, to make that transition out of medicine again into industry.
0: Now, what year was this that you joined them? 2007. So what kinds of things did you get to work on and get exposed to there?
1: Oh, everything. It was fantastic. I mean, as coming into Venrock, I was focused purely on life sciences, but it was drug discovery and development, medical devices, diagnostics, healthcare, IT, and literally being able to see hundreds of business plans a year and, you know, have dozens and dozens of meetings with entrepreneurs and leading scientists, et cetera. I mean, for me, that was almost like an ideal job because I think I've come to appreciate I love intellectual things and I think I'm intellectually curious. And it's like a feeding frenzy when you're at a venture capital firm because it's never ending. Right in terms of the different things that you're seeing and are being pitched at about.
0: It's a little like being a biotech journalist. I mean, every day is different. You're at the intellectual buffet. I mean, you can talk to the most interesting people about the latest things. It's so cool. Yeah. Okay, so after a few years, you just you you get the itch to uh, run one of these companies. How'd how'd that happen?
1: That was really through just serendipity. While I was at Venrock, we saw an early stage technology out of academia that looked quite promising, uh, but it needed someone to help put together the initial plans to get it up off the ground. And as a VC, some venture capitalists will step into that operating role just to help something get started. And so that was sort of the experiment we decided to do was to see if I could spend six months to a year maybe helping This first company that I was involved in, Ariosa Diagnostics, get up off the ground. Uh, But that ended up being six years of my life because uh, it was such an incredible experience. Things were so rapidly moving, and the investors and the board ultimately continued to put their trust and confidence in me as the CEO. And it's when I moved over into that entrepreneurial operating side that I think I truly found my real sort of just excitement and passion of doing things. And that's why I stayed an entrepreneur ever since I made that transition back in 2010.
0: And Ariosa, for those not familiar, this was one of the early movers in non-invasive prenatal testing. So it's taking some of the tools of DNA sequencing uh, and uh, looking at uh, signs of chromosomal abnormalities in the blood of the mom.
1: Yes, absolutely. It was so cool to think that you could get a snapshot of the genetic status of the fetus, right, that's growing inside a a woman's womb by taking a blood sample from the mom and being able to look at the DNA from the fetus and determine whether or not there could be a genetic condition that could affect the health of that fetus. And so um, that was an incredible experience to actually not only discover and develop a technology, but then to commercialize it globally in over a hundred countries And then ultimately, I think Roche saw the promise of that and acquired us back in 2015.
0: Okay, so by this point, you've been a VC and now you're a a successful uh, proven entrepreneur in your first go. Um, You did a couple other things. Uh, What came next? So after that, moved down to San Diego
1: for personal reasons to be closer to extended family. And then I moved from the diagnostic sector to the therapeutics. And so I became CEO of a company that was already in existence called Metacrine that was working on metabolic diseases. Um, and also around the same time, I got approached to become executive chairman of a sequencing technology company called Omnium. So I became involved in both of those um, right around the 2016-2017 time frame.
0: Omnium, for regular listeners, was mentioned in the last episode or a recent one with PacBio CEO Christian Henry, recently acquired by PacBio, uh, short read sequencing at higher levels of accuracy. So another <laughs> success under your belt. Um, so, But then you, um, you sort of became a free agent after Metacrine, right? You took that one public.
1: Uh, like I didn't then- I got it ready to go public, but I didn't take it public. And so, okay. um, I had done everything to take it from a discovery organization into a clinical stage organization with some initial proof of concept data, got everything lined up for the company to go public. But then, for me personally, I didn't see myself really being the public company's CEO, at least for Medicri at that time. And so, um I had sort of, you know worked with the board to talk about my transition. And, you know, I stayed on until we found uh, someone else to come in and, and take that company forward. Um, but it was during that time period that I then was starting to get approached by, you know, VCs and other people about what do you want to do next? And here I've got this idea and I've got that idea. And that's how this whole radiopharmaceutical thing came to light back in sort of the late spring of 2020.
0: Now, Ken, was this just because you just didn't see yourself being a public company CEO? You, you wanted to continue to do the startup thing? No,
1: it's not necessarily that. Um, you know, I think for myself, you know, medicrin has gone on and has, I think, has a great things that they're working on. But it was it was very much um, sort of one primary asset. And it was sort of going to go forward into mid and later stage clinical studies, which, frankly, takes time. And I think for myself, I really felt like I wanted to dive into something that was going to be much broader um, and that could have much more far-reaching, you know, impact beyond just one or a handful of programs. And so I wanted to sort of take that time uh, to sort of take a step back and just think about what did I really want to do? Given I had such this wealth of experiences from being a doctor to being an investor to being an operator, how could I take everything that I had learned over the past you know, 15, 20 years, and then apply that to something where I was still had enough energy, right, to want to actually take something forward, and hopefully make a really big impact within the healthcare space.
0: Okay, so by this time, you're about how old? Uh, 40. How old was I back then? I was
1: 45.
0: Okay. Okay. So classic, you know, uh, about the same age as me, you start thinking about, okay, uh, what do I really want to do with the next 10 or 15 years? Um, and so, okay. So you're, um, the VCs start calling you again with different things. So you're, look, you're, you're evaluating different things to work on. Uh, how did um, radio pharmaceuticals end up on your radar screen?
1: Yeah, it's crazy. So I remember this so well because it was a Thursday that I got a call uh, from one VC saying, hey, Ken, we've been looking at radio pharmaceuticals for the past several years, and we think it's a super interesting space. We've come across different ideas. There's this one in particular, and we'd love if you could you know, take a look at it and possibly be interested in running it. And that was Gerald Davis from Versant. Um, and then I kid you not, 24 hours later, I get a call from uh, Aaron Royston at Venn Bio saying, hey, Ken, We know that you're, you know, possibly going to be looking to do something next. We're looking at this radio pharmaceutical company. We think it's super interesting, but it needs someone, you know, to really take it and be the leader behind it. Would you be interested? And my initial response to those guys was probably not. I said, I don't think I'm the right person because number one, to be honest with you, I don't really understand, really know what it means when you say radio pharmaceuticals. I think I have to go look that up. And and secondly you know, I'm not really looking to just jump into anything just quite yet, right? I want to take my time to really find that that thing where I think has that really special spark to it that also has a high likelihood of being able to make a big impact, you know, somewhere in the broader healthcare space.
0: And at this time, radiopharmaceuticals just, I mean, wasn't, it didn't have that kind of cachet to it. I mean, it was sort of a sector, uh, an area of cancer drug development that had been considered a backwater, it had been written off by a lot of people for many years. Absolutely. Um,
1: and, you know, and and because of that, I wasn't really familiar with it. So I went back and sort of put my VC hat back on, right, to say, OK, how would I diligence this thing? And so I spent several months um, doing a super deep dive on my own to understand what the historic, what historically had happened in the field, what the current state of the art was and where one could possibly go forward with it. And, you know, after several months, hundreds of hours of sort of just reading, you know, tons of papers and speaking to individuals, I I came to realize that this is an amazing modality that has strong clinical validation behind it, that has been very much underappreciated and as a result, also heavily underinvested in. And so I was really surprised to end up where I did was to think, oh my gosh, here's an incredible opportunity in oncology where there's clinical validation data to show that it could have a differentiation in terms of level of efficacy. And yet it's almost a completely white space in terms of opportunity. And like, how often do you see that in oncology? I mean, almost never. And and given that and sort of the potential of where this could go, that's how I agreed to then sort of, you know, jump, jump in with both feet and launch Raise Bio, which we did back in um, August of last year.
0: Now, could we just say a little bit about some of this history? Because I, I actually covered this myself, and it's part of what piqued my ears up as well. You know, the there were kind of a, a couple of radio ph- pharmaceuticals from Corixa GSK and then another from uh IDEC, Biogen, Biogen, IDEC, Bexar, and Zevalin. And they were CD20-directed antibodies that were attached to radioactive isotopes. They both got FDA approval in the early 2000s timeframe, and they were very effective. Single-shot treatments uh, that uh, that delivered like, big response rates, 60-70% for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, and, and they didn't generate a lot of side effects. I mean, they look like something that would be quite viable in the wake of Rituxan, the, the original naked antibody for for non-Hodgkin's, but they failed. Uh, why was that?
1: Yeah, I think there's several things. I think,
0: first of all, those
1: were, new, those were definitely newer modalities. This was a completely different thing where the infrastructure and the familiarity just wasn't there. And so I think that education... The, the amount of education that it would take to sort of get people on board was a lot more than where it is today. Because I think people have learned and become more accustomed over the past couple of decades as to what pharmaceuticals is. I think the other issues was my understanding is that there were some manufacturing challenges um, that did lead towards um, some difficulties in supply chain. And, you know, obviously, when you're a doctor, and if you got an alternative, which is rituxan, which actually works quite well, if you if you find that you try to get another drug, and you're not able to get it for whatever reason. You know, you just need that end of one bad experience for you to then just say, you know what? If I've got another alternative, Rituxan and, you know, truth be told, you know, back in the 2000s, there were also certain things in play just financially that also made it perhaps more attractive for prescribing oncologists to use Rituxan versus a radiopharmaceutical, which required a referral right? to their nuclear medicine colleagues, which were in a separate part of the hospital. One is, I think it was super early because those were the first entrants. I think two is there were some manufacturing issues that had happened. Three, there were just differences in terms of just prescribing patterns and different incentives that might've been in play 20 years ago that are less in play now. And then most importantly, there was still the alternative of rituxan, which was still a very, very effective therapy that was out there. Um, And I think for those reasons, while these drugs showed great clinical efficacy, commercially they failed. So I think that's important to know that they succeeded from an approval and regulatory and clinical data perspective, but commercially they were not successful.
0: And because of that, investors lost a lot um, who had bet on that and shied away for many years. There wasn't a lot of startup activity to come uh, in the wake, despite of the clinical and regulatory success. Uh, It was a cautionary tale. Then, you know, uh, as you studied the history, there were a couple of advancements. There was Zofigo uh, for prostate cancer, kind of a, uh, it was acquired by Bayer. So that was, you know, some modest success. It didn't take over the world of prostate cancer, but then you came across a couple of papers that really opened your eyes. Uh, can you say a little bit about th- those? Yeah.
1: So there's um, probably the best study the, and the most well-known are instances in treating neuroendocrine tumors and prostate cancer. So um, the first one is a drug now on the market called Lutathera. And Lutathera is a drug that goes after uh, a relatively rare cancer called neuroendocrine tumors. And it delivers a radioactive particle called lutetium-177, which is a beta particle. But what really stood out was that there was a New England Journal of Medicine publication um, on something called the Netter one study that showed this amazing efficacy in a well-controlled randomized study looking at Lutathera, the radiopharmaceutical drug, compared to sort of the standard of care. And when you looked at the progression-free survival, the separation in the curves is almost like anything unseen in oncology. It was just gaping. Like you could drive a truck through that separation curve and the hazard ratio ended up being 021 I mean, for an oncology wow. drug to have a hazard ratio of 0.21, people that are listening will appreciate just how dramatic that is. And so that drug did get approved in
0: 2018. An 80% reduction in risk of disease progression or death. That's about as good as it gets. Absolutely. Um, so that that's, at least for me, when I was doing my
1: initial diligence, something that struck me uh, as just really, really impressive. Um, and that drug is approved and it's, and it's selling. And Novartis actually bought. company that developed that drug, uh, AAA, for like close to $4 billion, I think, back in uh, 2018 uh, or 2017. And then there was was other data that had been published by more academic groups looking at prostate cancer and treating that with uh, a a small molecule, small peptide that targets uh, PSMA, which is selectively expressed on prostate cancer cells. Uh, And again, they were using both now beta isotopes like lutetium, but also an alpha isotope, which is a more potent type of radioactive particle called actinium-225. And there, again, the clinical data and the clinical efficacy that had been at least uh, published by these academic centers around the world was also very, very impressive. And uh, Novartis, again, uh, you know, ended up acquiring a company that was now developing a drug uh, with uh, lutetium called Endocyte. Uh, And that drug just recently reported on some very, very impressive overall survival benefits at ASCO just this past summer, where they looked at um, standard of care and then adding on top of standard of care, targeted radiotherapy with lutetium-177, this beta isotope, and they were able to demonstrate an overall survival benefit uh, in very advanced prostate cancer patients.
0: A word from the sponsor of The Long Run, AnswerThink. Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP-certified solutions designed for the life science industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges, such as Integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, support for global rollouts, as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA's strict standards. Explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit AnswerThink.com/Timmerman and get a copy of their ebook, Top Three Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations. That's AnswerThink.com slash Timmerman. And have you heard of AbSci? AbSci is all about creating new possibilities in the realm of protein-based therapeutics. What does this mean? AbSci has a fundamentally different approach to drug discovery. It designs and develops next-gen biologics of any modality, from antibodies to T-cell engagers to completely novel protein scaffolds, including a futuristic format it calls Bionic Proteins. Because Absci conducts its screens in its scalable production cell line, it collapses several steps of biologics discovery into one integrated efficient process. Absci also has a unique computational antibody and antigen discovery approach for isolating fully human antibodies from disease tissues and using these antibodies to identify novel drug targets. Absci does all this with a powerful combination of deep learning AI and synthetic biology technologies. AbSci is already helping some of the best partners in biopharma translate their ideas into drugs. Check them out at AbSci.com and AbSci.ai. So now a story's coming together. You're seeing really compelling clinical data, and uh, these are getting uh, acquired, by Novartis, uh, Novartis had acquired both of these companies for significant dollars, venture capital type returns. So now the venture capitalists are, are starting to wonder about, you know, maybe there's a, a second act here for radiopharmaceuticals, um, and this is uh, this is when you came in uh, to to start raise. How did you think about? But now somebody could look at this and say, well, maybe those are one-off success stories, and, and you know. Had, had anything happened to um, change the uh, some of the incentive structures or the manufacturing that you had mentioned that were that were misaligned and off that made this look like it could be a more viable thing to like build a company around and do it in more than just a one-off fashion
1: yeah so a couple of things um, one is this the developing a radio of pharmaceuticals is dependent obviously, on having sufficient access to the radioactive isotopes. And in particular, some of these radioactive isotopes like lutetium-177, which is a beta isotope, or actinium-225, which is a more potent alpha isotope, those had historically been very, very limited in supply and only primarily manufactured by the governments or other, other sort of academic type institutions. And I think because of that limited supply, that really sort of led towards most of the work in this field being done within academia and not in industry. But lutetium, at least, started becoming more broadly available within the last decade or so, hence the advancement of, of lutathera and this this PSMA drug for prostate. And, and now lutetium is fairly broadly available, which makes which removes a huge barrier, right, towards people wanting to get into this field. Because if you can't access the isotope, then, you know, you might be able to do the clinical study, but if you can't commercialize it, then, you know, you're kind of stuck. But there is now, uh, I would say, a a very good supply of lutetium globally. So that supports development of beta-based therapies. Now with actinium, it's a little bit of a different story. Actinium is a, a much more potent radioactive isotope, um, than lutetium. But that one is still very scarce in terms of supply. And so um, there are a multitude of initiatives of companies that are trying to produce it at larger scale, but that hasn't yet come to light. And so the question becomes, you know, a little bit of chicken and the egg, right? Like, do you have to wait for that supply to be there before you want to start off and developing a, a host of drugs using an alpha isotope like actinium? But then some of those manufacturers are like, well, if there's no demand, how much do I really want to invest in actually scaling this up? Our view, you know, when we started Raised Bio was that we had enough visibility to have confidence that actinium supply would be solvable. And because of that, we wanted to make a big investment to start a company, to give these other entities, these nuclear physicists who have the technical expertise to develop these, the confidence that, oh yes, there is gonna be a demand, so then they can start investing in certain activities and what we've actually done at Raise Bio is actually partner with some of them and, and partner them in a way even financially to help them out or to incentivize them to start investing in production of actinium that they otherwise might not have done on their own.
0: Well, and in the beginning, if, if you're a drug developer and, you know, you got to run phase one trials, you don't need large supplies anyway. Uh, but if you get encouraging data, well, then you have a good reason to, you know, order more and scale it up.
1: Absolutely. We do not see this as a one-off. I mean, when you think about neuroendocrine tumors and you think about prostate, those are two very different solid tumor types. And yet you see dramatic clinical efficacy with two very different uh, types of drugs You know, albeit they're delivering the same radioactive isotope, the other structure of the drug is very different between those two solid tumors. Um, and so my view is if it's worked in two very different solid tumor types, there isn't any reason to believe that this shouldn't work more broadly across other solid tumors as well. It just hasn't been pursued. this,
0: This raises an interesting question about the biology of these things, right? Um, they, um have some similarities in concept to antibody drug conjugates in which you have an antibody that hits a, a surface um, marker uh, and it carries a toxic chemotherapy payload to kill the tumor. In this case, you've got radiation that is your, your toxic payload. It doesn't necessarily have to get in the tumor, does it? I mean, I mean it's better, I think, if it does, but it also ha- has this... Um, this effect of uh, you know damaging some of the cells in the microenvironment, um, which might be good, like cleaning up some of where the, the tumor might be escaping, um, or making way for uh, immune cells to come in and, and do some extra mop up. What, what do you think is going? What, what do we know, I guess, about the biology of radiopharmaceuticals and maybe how they might be combined with other treatments?
1: Yeah, I think one of the great things about radiopharmaceuticals is pretty easy to understand because once you deliver that radioactive particle to that tumor environment, that radioactive particle just through its natural properties is going to decay and release an incredible amount of radioactive energy within that defined space of where that particle is. And it's just going to destroy things indiscriminately. So that's the beauty of a radiopharmaceutical is the drug is actually the isotope and the binder and everything else is purely just a delivery mechanism to make sure that you're selectively delivering it to the tumor. And, and as you said, it's it is very similar to an antibody drug conjugate concept, which many people are familiar with. You know, people use an antibody to deliver a toxic payload, but in the case of an antibody drug conjugate, you have to get inside the cell and that payload then has to actually be cleaved inside the cell so that it can then go find wherever it needs to go to, to actually cause the cell to be destroyed. Whereas with the radioactive, so the way I think about this in a simplistic way is with radiopharmaceuticals, you just need to be in the right zip code. And if you're in the right zip code, that's good enough. Cause then that particle is just gonna destroy anything that's around it. Whereas if you're like an ADC, you need to not only be in the right zip code, you need to be at the right address. And that package needs to be inside the house. Right, so <laughs> it's a lot harder to do that than you. Know, you, tell, you tell someone, "Hey, deliver this to nine two one three zero zip code." That's really easy for anyone to do. But to say you have to deliver this package, you know, at this address inside the house, which is what you need to do with an ADC. That's a lot more complex.
0: Now, of course, you know it's a balancing act. Uh, you don't want that uh, radioactive isotope to extend too far, so that it's actually killing healthy cells. Then you're going to get toxic side effects. Um, and, and so um, there, there's, a, there's a fine line here. H- how do you think about that? Yeah,
1: so this is where I think um, using things like alpha and beta particles really makes a difference and opens up the field of radiopharmaceuticals because these alpha and beta particles, alpha particles, an example is actinium-225, beta particles, lutetium-177, their range of killing, if you wanna call it, for a beta particle is like a millimeter or two, um, so it's very, very limited. But for an alpha particle, the range of killing is only tens of microns. So you're talking microscopic levels. So um your the the chance, particularly with an alpha particle, that you're going to have some type of untowards, you know, crossfire damage to nearby normal tissues is pretty, pretty low. Now, the 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 caveat here, though, is you need to make sure, though, because they're so potent, that you're delivering it selectively to the tumor cells. So this is why it becomes important to select the right target that you want to bind to to develop, to deliver the alpha isotope. And you want to make sure that you design the right drug so that selectively binds to that cancer target of interest. Because you don't want it to be non-specifically binding to other parts of the body, because it is true you end up delivering an alpha particle or a beta particle non-specifically to other normal tissues in the body. Then you will see, uh, you know, uh, tolerability or toxicity issues. But so it okay, all comes so down to I, target selection you- and design of the molecule.
0: I think you're getting to some of the fundamentals here of like, what what do you need to assemble like a legitimate radiopharmaceutical? And uh, maybe you could just break it down for listeners who are a little bit new to this. But I mean, it starts with the antigen. So there's the the target itself, like you say, that this is expressed on cancer cells and hopefully very little or not at all on healthy cells so that you're getting to where it needs to go. Then there's the, uh, the targeting agent. Like the thing that gets you to that zip code, as you say, uh, could be an antibody, could be something else. Then there's the linker and the isotope. And so you've talked some about the isotope, but maybe could you just c- kind of quickly walk us through like those steps, those, uh, those those three components, really, the three-legged stool.
1: Well, I like how you did it because you, you did it in the order that we would think is the appropriate way to think about this is you have to always start with the biology first. Right, So you have to understand what are the targets that are selectively expressed on the tumor cells um, or overexpressed on tumor cells and minimally or not expressed in normal tissue. So we have a we have an ongoing exercise to always interrogate the biology of what's known in the field and prioritize a whole set of targets that we're going after. Now the truth is that now you have to think about how do I now think about a binder to deliver that radioisotope? And for us, this is where smaller is better. And there's a so the smaller the binder is, the better off you're gonna be. And it's both from an efficacy standpoint and a safety standpoint. So if you work with a small molecule or a small peptide, uh, the benefit of that is that these small molecules, these small peptides have a much better chance at penetrating deeply into the tumor so that they can bind throughout the entirety of the tumor mass. And when you think about delivering a radioactive isotope, which only has a range of kill of tens of microns for an actinium particle, you need to make sure that you're penetrating the tumor as deeply as possible. And you're more likely to do that with a smaller sort of binder than you are with like a large antibody.
0: Now, Ken, is this partly because there's just so much stroma, like just, you know, all that junk around the tumor that it's got to like get through all these barricades?
1: That's the, that's exactly the way to think about it, is that, yeah, tumors are a complex network of a multitude of different cells and fibrous tissue, et cetera. And so what's going to give you the best probability that you can get a molecule to sort of find its way through all those different nooks and crannies so that it can actually bind the cancer cells that you're trying to kill?
0: So that leads you to peptides, peptide mimetics as the targeting agent.
1: Yeah, I would say we've broadened in terms of peptides, small molecules, things that are small, right? So I would just say generally things smaller is better um, because it gives you and affords you that higher likelihood of being able to get more homogeneously deep into the nooks and crannies of a tumor. But also, the reason that we like to focus on these smaller type of binders, is that it also lends towards much better safety. And the reason for that is because, think about an antibody. When you give someone an antibody, antibodies are known to usually circulate in the bloodstream for many, many days, if not weeks. Now, for most drugs, that's not a problem, right? Because they're just circulating around and not causing any harm, as long as they're not binding to anything. But in radiopharmaceuticals, it's a very different picture. If you have a circulating antibody, but tethered to that is an active radioactive particle that is naturally decaying. What you're doing then is you are systemically irradiating the body for days or weeks on end. um, And that leads towards bone marrow exposure, bone marrow toxicity, et cetera. And that has been well established throughout decades of work in the radiopharmaceutical literature. And so with a radiopharmaceutical, the design principles are find A molecule that could deliver uh, of the radioactive particle to the tumor of interest, let it bind there. And for anything that is unbound to the tumor, you want to get it out of the body as quickly as possible. And so you're much more likely to be able to achieve that with a smaller agent like a peptide or small molecule than you are with an antibody.
0: Now, are these linkers highly stable as well? Because I think there were earlier uh, treatments, this might have been more for ADCs, where the linkers weren't that stable, and so your, your toxic payload pops off and it's floating in the bloodstream. <laughs>
1: That's pretty dangerous. So you don't want your toxic payload, especially a radioactive particle, just you know indiscriminately floating around. And, and again, in the case of a radiopharmaceutical, you could have a very stable linker because the goal here is just to deliver that radioactive payload again, to the tumor vicinity or in that tumor environment, and then just let the radioactive particle do what it needs to do. With an ADC, you need to play around with the linker because with an antibody drug conjugate, what it's delivering is a a chemotherapeutic drug, and that drug needs to separate at some point from the antibody to be effective. That's not the case with radiopharmaceuticals because once the radioactive payload is at the tumor, and just sort of in the area, it will then cause the damage that it needs to do um, there. Whether or not it's inside the cell or outside the cell, whether or not there's a stable linker or, or not, um, that particle doesn't care once it sort of goes through its natural decay and it emits its energy.
0: Okay, so considering these principles, you found early on, when, when you decided to like go in and start this as a company, one of those first things you did, I think, was finding that partnership with the Actinium-225. So is, it, is it the same person, a uh, group that supplies the uh, isotope as provides the targeting agent? No. Okay, Okay. so can you talk about like the partnerships that you've put together to like turn this into a platform company? Sure,
1: so um, there's a multitude of components here, which is actually, is I find super
0: interesting. So
1: on the discovery side, you want to be able to find these novel binders or targeting agents. And the nice thing is that there's a multitude of companies that are out there that have specialized in screening, right? They have their own special drug libraries or peptide libraries that they've optimized, and they usually provide this as some type of service or partnership, et cetera. And so we've actually forged several partnerships with entities who are specialized in Uh, screening for novel targeting agents that will bind to a protein or a cancer target of interest. A couple of those we've disclosed publicly, others we haven't, but we're working with uh, a a number of them that all have their own approach and their technology. So that's finding the binder. Um, And we do some of that work ourselves internally, but a lot of it is also through partnership. Um, Once you have that binder, then we do a lot of work ourselves internally to make sure that we can optimize it to make sure it's got the right properties in terms of clearance and other things like charge state etc there's a whole litany of things that we we try to optimize but then you have to then find people to provide the radioactive isotope that's a whole separate cast of characters usually people that are way smarter than i am who spent their life in nuclear physics and all these other things working with particle accelerators and all this other stuff and they're really good at dealing with nuclear material and doing complex physics to basically you know, purify and extract out these rare, precious nuclear isotopes. So there are a handful of entities, you know, in the U.S. and abroad, and that's a whole separate group of individuals that we work with that can then provide that piece of the equation. Then the other thing that you need to do, though, is then you need to then pair your binder and that isotope and put them together. And that's sort of the final process of developing your final drug product and that's a highly specialized uh, skill set to be able to do. And there's not many entities that can do that. And so we have a partner uh, that we've established to do some of that GMP manufacturing for us to be able to make those drugs and eventually get those out to patients. But we're also very much actively uh, in the process of looking to have that capability ourselves because uh, we realize that that's such a critical piece to making sure that the assembly is done correctly and the distribution of that is done appropriately. Because this is kind of just-in-time manufacturing. right? Because these, these isotopes are always actively decaying. So there's a lot of coordination and logistical uh, complexity behind that. And so we do believe having more oversight and control over that is going to benefit us in the long run.
0: Are you thinking that you'll do that here in the US, maybe somewhere close to where your uh, the rest of your team is in San Diego? We definitely will do it in the
1: U.S. and probably not in California, um, because the the handling and the regulations. There are some places, both from a regulatory perspective and also just from a logistical perspective, in terms of you know shipping items out, that it would make more sense to have it you know probably somewhere more in the middle of the U.S. rather than on either
0: coast, with a very good airport, I bet. <laughs> okay, um, now. I think when we spoke before, you mentioned that the targeting agents that you have settled on uh, have an extra advantage in their diagnostic utility. Uh, why is that important?
1: Yeah, I, this radiopharmaceuticals to me, I think, is going to be the modality that can actually deliver on true precision medicine. I mean, we hear about precision medicine for the last 20 years, ever since even the beginning of the Human Genome Project, and different people have tried to do it in different ways. but I think you have to understand with a radiopharmaceutical, what you can do is you can actually take your targeting agent, your binding motif, and instead of delivering a therapeutic radioisotope like actinium or lutetium, you can put into that exact same drug molecule an imaging isotope that doesn't have any cellular killing effect. And so what you can do is you can actually administer your drug with an imaging agent to every single patient, and you can then real time, directly visualized to understand whether or not your drug is going into that patient's tumor and if it's going into any other parts of the body that you don't want it to go. And so it's it's amazing because in what other area can you actually give someone your drug, quote unquote, but it actually doesn't do anything except just give you information on where it's going and then allows you to select for those patients who should then go on to actually get the therapy. So the crazy thing here is it is structurally and chemically it is identical the diagnostic agent and the therapeutic agent with the only difference being the radioactive isotope whether you're using an imaging isotope or a therapeutic isotope so this is what really excites me having been on the diagnostic side of the business and also on the therapeutic side is being able to actually see those two pieces come together and importantly being able to properly identify those patients who really should get your therapy so you're not in the guessing so in game a way
0: in a way, RAISE is like a diagnostic and a therapeutic company all in one. And, and what this means for you uh, in practical terms is, uh, I mean, you can run a clinical trial where um, you, you can administer the diagnostic agent first, see if that's getting to the tumor, and like, really uh, increase your probability of success. You know through the dry run that your drug is going to get to the tumor. And and also the physicians, the investigators, and someday the physicians in the community will have that same degree of confidence that the patient in front of me is like a very, very good candidate for a good response if it gets to the tumor. Absolutely. And patients
1: too. I mean, patients will know that. They'll be like, oh, I'm getting a test first to see whether or not I'm likely to respond to this therapy. Whereas today, most of the times when patients are getting you know, chemotherapy or targeted chemotherapy, they really don't know whether or not they're going to have a response to it.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, Can you say a little bit, people must be wondering at this point, okay, what targets are you going after? Uh, What indications? uh, Are you able to say much about that? We
1: still hold that a little bit close to the vest. Um, You know, I would say that we are working on a lot of programs. And what I think what we like to do is once we're ready to get into the clinic, because um, that's really what matters, right? I mean, you could talk about all the science and all the things that you're doing in the research lab, et cetera, but it really doesn't become real until you start talking about this drug is going to go into patients. And so I think that for us is the appropriate time to talk about what we really have, right? Rather than just talking about, you know, the potential of what might actually be.
0: Okay, but to give people a better idea, so when we spoke a year ago around the Series A, I think you said that you had about 10 validated targets uh, at the top of your list uh, and that you were going to, you know, work through that, you know, that complicated exercise of figuring out the right targeting agent and the, I mean, uh, to, to go after each of those. Has that changed at all in the last year?
1: not really i mean we've expanded i would say because we've gotten more resources we've been able to secure a fair amount of financing for the company um and we've also been very opportunistic to look very broadly uh, to see where opportunities could be broadly within the space of radio pharmaceuticals and so we started with that initial thesis and what you covered on us a year ago and i think we've expanded beyond that to think about how do we become the leading radio pharmaceutical company where we look across all different tumor types, all different, even types of isotopes, not just actinium-225, but I will say that over the course of that last year, we've not only made progress on our discovery front, but we do have visibility towards being in the clinic um, next year, which is super exciting for us.
0: Okay, so this is moving pretty quickly. How many employees do you have there now? We have 45 full-time employees that we've
1: hired. Um, you know that, that, That's continuing to grow uh, every week. And we work with a bunch of contract employees overseas who do some of the chemistry work for us. And that, that actually exceeds, I think, over 50 people. So we've got nearly 100 people now effectively working on building out this pretty exciting pipeline that hopefully one day soon I'll be able to share a lot more details about.
0: Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, and when you find a good candidate, you must be excited because there aren't that many with some of these specialized skills. <laughs> um, now they're, you're not the only company uh, trying to do this. There, you know, I saw Act uh, Actis Therapeutics out of the East Coast is one that's got some pretty well-known invest, investors behind it. Um, how do you think you will differentiate yourself uh, over time?
1: Yeah, so I'll say it's going to come down to the science and the execution. So. I think our approach, both in terms of target selection and the targeting moiety selection and how broadly we're doing this. I mean, you know, to, to borrow a term from maybe the, the tools diagnostic space, you know, we're doing massively parallel discovery, like feel like about massively parallel sequencing. We are doing massively parallel discovery. I think that's very unique because uh, a lot of times people will settle on one binding motif or one type of way to do things. And I think we've recognized that there's many different ways to get to the end game here. And so this is why we have such a broad set of partnerships, you know, on the discovery side. And I think we've been very mindful on the target selection side, but we are also building out that infrastructure to really have more vertical integration. And I think that's what I'm going to set us apart is I'm building this company to be a fully vertically integrated enterprise. Right. So not a company, but an enterprise one that does discovery, one that does manufacturing and one that does commercialization. Um, Because I do believe that this is such an exciting modality. And it's one that there are very, very few companies that have knowledge even of this area that we could be the ones that are the ones that are that really sort of shape the entire industry. And so I know that some biotech companies, you know, think about an exit strategy, right? Like, who's my partner? Who's going to buy me out? That is the last thing on my mind. You know, for me, it's how do we ensure that radio pharmaceuticals is efficiently delivered globally to the marketplace? And we're determined to do that. And I've commercialized products before. Um, so I've got the confidence that we can accomplish that. And I think that's what's going to set us apart at the end of the day is we're building an enterprise, not just a company. And I think we've got to, Pretty, I like to think we have a pretty good start on this, and it behooves us now to make sure that we maintain that lead and that we think about, we continue to think about things in a big way.
0: Interesting. Commercial piece obviously will come later. You mentioned discovery. Is there something about the fundamentals of this uh, platform, this modality that that gives you more comp? Uh, <laughs> A higher degree of confidence in your discovery work? You know, I can imagine you do, you do mouse experiments like everybody else and m- mice are, um, you know, have been cured of cancer many times and they're not people. Uh, you know, that's been a, a hard thing for people in oncology. Is there something about what you're doing here that um, that gives you confidence going into the clinic?
1: Yeah, I would say several things that gives us more confidence and the higher probability of success with discovery is that At the end of the day, we really don't need to understand the underlying biology of these targets. You know, Like a lot of other cancer therapies that are being developed need to understand how they interfere with a pathway or modulate a pathway, et cetera. All we're looking to do is basically find those markers that we can just bind to and then deliver this agent. And so if there's a downstream mutation in that signaling pathway, or there's something else that's happening in the cell that's biologically occurring, that's irrelevant to us, which gives us a huge advantage. Because all we need to know is: is that target expressed in cancer, and if so, to what level and how homogeneous is it? Because if it's a highly expressed target that's homogeneous expressed in the tumor, that's pretty much all the biology we need to know.
0: <laughs> right, right. But but you know, f- we are also still talking about radiation, and you know, there's issues with handling it. Um, there's there's also just exposure in the body over time. You know, people don't want lots of it. There, You can get secondary malignancies uh, years later from radiation exposure, right? So, how do you think about managing some of the, I guess, the handling and the uh, long-term exposure questions?
1: Well, this is what we really like about certain radioactive isotopes, particularly things like alpha particles and actinium, is actually the handling of this and you know, through manufacturing and delivery is much easier than other typical forms of radiation. Because again, alpha particles only emit their radiation in tens of microns. You and I can actually have a full glass of actinium particles right in front of our face with no protection whatsoever. And we would be a 100% fine with no radiation exposure. I think that's what's mind blowing is like you have this incredibly potent radioactive particle, but it's actually quite safe. and. Our job is to make sure that we're selectively delivering it to the tumor because once it gets there, it'll destroy the tumor. And as long as it's not getting caught up anywhere else in the body, you're not actually having any radiation exposure or any worries about any long-term effects.
0: Okay, so you don't need to wear the lead vest. Importantly, that the healthcare provider who administers it does not need to wear the lead vest and then worry about that. Right. (laughs) And even the patients, like
1: even the patients, if they were to get an alpha therapy, it's an outpatient therapy and they can go home and hug their kids that same day and not worry about transmitting the radiation to their family members. That's what's really cool about some of these newer, you know, newer types of radioactive particles that this industry is thinking about developing for targeted radiopharmaceuticals. I get it, radiation has a certain stigma to it, but this is where education is so important that certain types of radioactive particles are very, very effective at killing things that are immediately uh, adjacent to where that particle is. But beyond that, they're actually very, very safe to handle and to deal with.
0: Interesting. So you got a lot of programs that you're working on in parallel. Um, What's this company going to look like, you think, in five years?
1: I would say in five years, we hope to actually already be commercial and generating revenue with our first product, which is a pretty ambitious goal for a company that's only started a year ago. But I actually think that in five years, that's uh, a definite possibility. Uh, we would hope to have at least a couple of other agents that are in advanced clinical studies uh, leading towards uh, final readout and near-term approval. Um, and basically, I like to think when people think about radiopharmaceuticals, the first thing they think about is raise Bio.
0: Uh-huh. What about combinations? I flicked at that earlier, but um, maybe, you know, if a person gets a genomic test and they look like they've got a certain driver mutation, they might want a targeted therapy. And then could you sequentially come in with the radio pharmaceutical either before or after or or how do you, or, or an immunotherapy maybe?
1: One of the areas I think that's generated quite a bit of interest is com- combining this with immunotherapy, uh, because the concept here is that, uh, radioactive particles are so effective at causing cell death that you can actually have a massive release of neoantigens from the tumor. So, if you combine that with immunotherapy or whatever that sort of primes the immune system, that together they actually complement each other. The radiation, their targeted radiopharmaceutical will kill the tumors, you know, will release a massive amount of those neoantigens. And if you've primed the immune system through immunotherapy, they're there seeing a ton of these antigens that they can then respond to. And so perhaps there's certain tumors where, let's just say your target of interest is, you know, not expressed throughout the tumor, but like 60 or 70% of the tumor. Well, you could still then think about doing a combination with radiation to kill 60 to 70% of that tumor directly, but then have that combined with immunotherapy where the immunotherapy can then sort of take care of the rest and also continue to do immune surveillance after the radiation has sufficiently decayed.
0: Now when you say immunotherapy are you thinking primarily of the PD1 inhibitors?
1: Yeah, and that would be sort of the the natural first thing to gravitate towards.
0: So how big do you think radio the radio pharmaceuticals can be? I mean, is this something that really could go mainstream in oncology, radiation oncology and be like something where people like begin to recognize it as like another major modality?
1: I actually think um,
0: just because of the simpler
1: design um, and the higher potency, I believe that radio pharmaceuticals can actually eclipse that of what antibody drug conjugates have done for the field. So I think this is a massive opportunity um, that will be broadly applicable to all sorts of different types of cancers. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised five years from now if there's dozens and dozens of, dozens of companies that are pursuing this area. Um, and my hope is that you know ten years from now that there's dozens of therapies that have been approved. And hopefully we'll be behind, you know, a good number of those.
0: Fascinating stuff, Ken. I, uh, I wish you best of luck on this journey. Maybe I'll check in with you in five years and see how much of it uh, comes to pass. Thanks for joining me today on The Long Run. All right. Thanks so much, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach.